everyone, and welcome to the 2023 Steps and Traditions Weekend Workshop. My name is Jen, and I am a recovered alcoholic. My home group is the Modem to Modem Group in Oregon Area 58, District 9, Northwest Southwest Portland, where I currently serve as alternate DCM. Thank you to the hospitality crew, and especially Mike there and everyone participating today for taking care of some important housekeeping items before we get started. I'd also like to welcome and thank in advance Chris R. from the Ingram Solutions Group and out of Texas and um, also Billy N. Chris will be uh, taking us through the 12 steps and Billy will be taking us through the 12 traditions. We'll be going until 5 o'clock p.m. Pacific this evening, stopping for a one-hour lunch break from 12 to 1 p.m., and because we don't want you to miss a moment of the action, we'll also be taking a 10-minute bathroom smoke or get yourself a snack break later this afternoon. Tomorrow, we will have another full day starting again at 9 a.m. Pacific. There will also be a Q&A session tomorrow night to close out this wonderful weekend. You can find a link to the digital Ask It Basket posted in the chat. Please make sure to get your questions in by 3.30 p.m. tomorrow. I would now like to introduce our workshop committee chair to say a few words about the purpose of this workshop. I give you District 5 DCM, Carrie B. Thank you, Jen. Hi, guys. My name is Carrie, and I am an alcoholic. Um, New Horizons is my home group, and I'm practicing steps 10, 11, and 12. I would like to welcome everyone to the 2023 12 Steps and 12 Traditions Weekend Workshop. We're glad you're all here. Uh, what is the purpose of this weekend? Well, this is a quote from AA Comes of Age, page 139. AA's 12th step, carrying the message, is the basic service that our fellowship gives. It is our principal aim and the main reason for our existence. AA is more than a set of principles. It is a society of recovered alcoholics in action. We must carry AA's message. Otherwise, we ourselves may fall into decay and those who have not yet been given the truth may die. This is why we so often say that action is the magic word. Again, that comes from page 139 in the book, AA Comes of Age. I'm 12 years sober. <clears throat> when I was first taken through the 12 steps, I was rocketed into the fourth dimension of existence. The steps, our first legacy, um, rocketed me clear over the second legacy, the traditions, into our third legacy of service. I was on fire. I was trying to carry the message to anyone and everyone who would hear it. I'm sure no one in this room can relate to that. <laughs> uh, with perfectly good intent, I created a lot of wreckage. I didn't have any guardrails. I didn't have an understanding of the 12 traditions and just how vital they really are. I became involved in general service, and soon after, at an area assembly in the marathon meeting room, I met a couple of people who, although very involved in general service, knew very little about the big book and didn't have an understanding of the steps. I see that it can work both ways. I've been taught that the 12 steps are our message. They're the only message that we have to offer in AA and that the 12 traditions are here to protect that message. That's what we're doing here this weekend. Hopefully, those of us in love with the big book can have an open mind and a new experience with the traditions, and those who may already be acquainted with the traditions may have a new experience with the steps. Thank you for allowing me to be of service this weekend, and please enjoy our workshop. Thank you, Carrie. And now to officially get this workshop party started, I'd like to introduce our prayer chair, Joy. Thank you so much, Joy, recovered alcoholic, and I am honored to be the prayer chair for this weekend. Uh, I have a home group and I have a sponsor, and I'm active in, uh, the, as, in as a member in Alcoholics Anonymous. And this is a prayer for open-mindedness to get us started. God, please help me lay aside everything I think I know about AA our steps, and our traditions. Please allow me to keep an open mind and the ability to learn something new through the literature today so that I may have a whole new experience with both the fellowship as well as the 24 spiritual principles. Amen. 
Thank you, Joy. And now, without further delay, here to share his story with us, it is an honor to welcome our friend, Chris R. from the Ingram Solutions Group. Chris, you have 35 minutes. Thank y'all so much for letting me come. Dad damn it, I, uh, I sure do appreciate it. My name is Chris R. I uh, am a recovered alcoholic, uh, sober date November 13th, 1987, after years of stumbling around with this. And um, we got a little, we got a little big book group in Ingram, Texas, uh, meets on Monday and Wednesday, and uh, we study the literature and, and, um, and that's it. We, uh, we love it to death. Y'all are welcome to every up in uh, the hill country in Texas. We're about 60 miles just west of San Antonio. We're up in the hills, kind of right in the center of Texas. And uh, y'all are sure welcome if you want to want to come visit. Uh, if you could, uh, it wouldn't be too much trouble if you could bring uh, some rain with you when you come. We would appreciate that. I'm going to tell you, Texas is dry. So I really want to, again, thank everybody, Perry and Mike and all. Everybody that had anything to do with putting this together. I uh, we did this a, a, a while back with uh, Billy and Billy and I have known each other forever. I, I've sat in Yankee Stadium and watched the Yankees play with Billy uh, back in the day, and and um, I uh, I married a Yankee, and that's why I, I ended up marrying uh, uh, meeting Billy back a gazillion years ago. And um, looking forward to spending a few hours with him uh, as well. I. Uh, I want to remind everybody, I'm, I, I have, over the years of doing this, I have mastered the art of watching the clock and speaking at the same time. So I'm, I'm paying pretty close attention to that old clock. So if you guys don't get, I, I'm not going to go over. I do, it's been pointed out, thought pretty fast, and I'm going to try to slow that down. Um, I will fail miserably. I'm going to try to do the very, the very best I can, but, uh, uh, that's the way that works. I want to make a, a kind of a little declarative statement here. Always do when I speak. I'm going to share for the next two days. I'm going to share my experience with the steps, and 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 my experience again may may be different than your experience. And one thing I know a long time ago, I just beautiful the lead in which Carrie was talking about. You know, I spent a bunch of time as a zealot in Alcoholics Anonymous, and I, you know, very critical of anybody that wasn't doing it my way. And I got to tell you, folks, there's is I think the closer that we adhere to what the Big Book is asking us to do, the better it's going to be. I'm just I'm, I'm going to say that. So you know, your way, and if you disagree with something, I, that's just perfectly okay, guys. I'm just my my experience is is uh, seven years in and out of Alcoholics Anonymous, not not being able to stay sober, and uh, I've also spent uh, a bunch of years in the treatment biz, uh, doing clerical work for a treatment center, and I'm not a therapist or a counselor, but watching thousands of people come in and and uh, and uh, and leave and have watching their experiences in our beautiful fellowship. So I'm coming from a perspective of, um, you know, of that. So we deal with a lot of newcomers and watching what works for them and what doesn't work for them. And, and uh, just some of the stuff that I want to talk about and I'll kind of interweave it with the, with the things we're going to be talking about. But um, I, uh, uh, I got a twin brother that's an alcoholic. Some of y'all know Myers. Uh, he's in recovery, been here a long time. And um, he uh, he and I caught the, the bullet. I've got two sisters. We were born out in, in uh, Odessa, Texas, far west Texas, out in the oil field. My father was a printer. And and that's, you know, one big disclaimer I want to make is I, I came from a wonderful family. You know, I listen to some of these speakers and they're, you know, they were raised by a pack of wolves and, you know, God, everybody sits there. No wonder they're an alcoholic. That was not my experience. You know, we were on the front row of the Baptist church every time the door opened up and, and dad was the hardest working man I ever knew. He was an alcoholic and you could look up both sides of my family tree and there's active alcoholism in both sides. And, uh, but my twin brother and I caught the bullet. And uh, my two sisters did. We've been trying to get them drunk for <laughs> ever since we got sober. They they just won't do it, you know. So, and they're a sweetheart. My little sister actually lives up in in Oregon, and uh, I'm going to get to see her in uh, in a few months. But uh, uh, pops moved us to the hill country uh, in 1964. Soon after I lost this eye in a rock fight, and. Uh, just uh, we had an idyllic life, guys. I mean, I wish I could turn the camera around and show you that I'm right down here on the Guadalupe River. 
and a beautiful little place. I'm about five miles uh, downstream, upstream right now from where I took my first drink. And uh, Boone's Farm Apple Wine. Yeah, buddy. I was in high school and and uh, kids bought a bottle. And, and uh, we were down there on the river leaning up against one of those 700-year-old cypress trees. And I drank a bottle of Boone's Farm. And January of 1971 is when I took my first drink. Yeah, I mean, I know it. And as the uh, the month, the year that Bill Wilson passed away, I took my first drink and uh, it was good, folks. I've heard a thousand speakers say the same thing, guys. I get, I'll never forget that first drink. And because uh, it was the first time I remember I dad had given me sips of his beers over the years. But this is the first time I had enough alcohol in my system to to change the way I felt in any way. And uh, I remember walking back across that field and, and Golden hat down here in the hills, and and um, I felt. I mean, I was I was okay. I was comfortable. I was breathing all the way in and all the way out. <laughs> I just, guys, I was always such a nervous little guy. You know, I was just. It was always just uncomfortable. I was full of fear. I was shy as I could be. Still am pretty shy. But it's just like um, uh, alcohol allowed me to be comfortable in my skin. And I mean. You know, it was a small bottle. I didn't rob a liquor store or get blackout or do anything crazy. I just got, got comfortable and uh, I was going to do it every chance I could. And, and uh, the next year in high school, football, you know, Friday night stuff, go out and get a keg of beer and everybody drinks. And it's just guys, it was just nothing big going on. Everybody was doing the same thing. I was not hurting, you know, doing crazy stuff. Um couldn't wait to get out of the hills and move to Houston, the big city. Golly. And uh, we were in Texas. We were still too young to buy booze. Uh, you know, I was 18, 19 years old. You had to be 21 back in the day. And uh, uh, but my next door neighbors there and uh, we got a little raggedy apartment in Houston. My brother and I think seven other guys. It was y'all know the kind of place it was. Green shag carpet, beanbag chairs. Oh, my gosh. All of you old 70s know exactly what I'm talking about. Anyway. It was good. And uh, we were drinking and uh, no problem. But I got to tell you, uh, it's there was something that started to slide in along with the alcoholism. And that was depression. And, uh, you know, therapists always want to talk about, well, which came first, the chicken or the egg. But one of the number one symptoms of untreated alcoholism is depression, folks. And the only way that I can get comfortable in my skin is to drink. And um, I'm starting to do what so many of us in this beautiful room have done. I'm starting to look around me for solutions because um, I'm not really happy. Now, listen, again, I'm not getting in any trouble with alcohol, but I'm changing a lot of jobs. I'm convinced that if I could just get the right job and the right woman in the right town, then I'd be comfortable in my skin. I wasn't doing this so I could stop drinking. I was doing this just so, you know, I could be happy all the time, not just when I was drinking. And um uh, I golly guys, I never got fired from a job, but I quit 34. I'm in the food business. I was a professional chef. And of course, any of y'all in the food business knows, but you can quit a job and two hours later have another one. And uh, I'm pretty talented at what I do at the time. And uh, uh, went to Austin, Texas, went to Atlanta, Georgia, came back, went to Vernon, Texas, came back, went to Houston again. I just, I was constantly moving guys, catching up with me. And uh, yeah. Not a happy camper. Let's say that. I uh, ended up uh, getting married in one of those little geographic cures and I married a nice girl and uh, moved up to North Texas. I walked away from a little restaurant we'd started and moved, moved up to North Texas to be closer to my twin brother. Got a job at a country club and, and uh, you know, steady drinking. Starting to do little outside issues. Only time I'll mention that. And uh, mixing it with the alcohol, we called it our alcohol enhancers. But, you know, guys, yeah, not happy. And uh, I came home one night after a day at work drinking and uh, in the restaurant business. Again, guys, they don't care if you drink on the job or not. As long as you show up and do your job, nobody cared. Uh, it, uh, I don't remember what the fight was about, but I had a little pushing match with my wife and and uh, she asked me to leave, and I did, and came back a few hours later, and I sobered up a little bit and apologized to her and uh, explained to her what I'd been doing, and she had no idea how much I was drinking. And uh, and we had the conversation that I needed to quit drinking. And I got, I'm all for this, guys. I mean, this you know, there comes a time when alcohol worked, and then there comes a time when alcohol stops working. And that's the tough part. Bill Wilson talks about it. You're going to know loneliness like few do. You get to that place where you can't imagine life living with it. You can't imagine life living without it. And I just like, okay. 
And I looked her in the eyes with tears and said, I will stop drinking. And we had a conversation. No, you let's make sure we're on the same page. And uh, I, I was. I poured all the alcohol and stuff out. And the next day, uh, I called Alcoholics Anonymous. This was in the early 80s, folks. And uh, I went to my first A&A meeting the next day. And uh, a week and a half later, the chef asked me to stay after and have a, have a beer with him, go over the function sheets for the next week. And I, I drank a beer. And I came home. I patted myself on the back because I didn't get drunk. My deal with her wasn't that I wasn't going to come home drunk. My deal with her was that I wasn't going to touch another drop. And I drank, never gave it a second thought. Y'all understand that? That's the insanity of that first drink. Bless her heart. She was done. And uh, I spent the next seven years, guys, in and out of Alcoholics Anonymous. And uh, I need to tell you, I am not taking, being critical of any of those people up there. I just happened to be in an area at the time, the meeting I was going to, there weren't any big books in the place. There were no, there were steps and traditions on the wall. We read how it worked from the plaque. And uh, we, you know, <laughs> I didn't have a sponsor and uh, I'm working the steps, uh, not because uh, we're not talking about the steps in the meetings. We're talking about everybody else's problem. And uh, I'm going crazy, guys. And uh, a lot of y'all hear me talk before. If y'all heard me, and I, again, I'm not being critical of that there's a lot of meetings like that out there, folks. And they're just more power to them. If they can get sober that way, I, I just... Uh, this is not a problem-solving fellowship, folks. This is a spiritual program of action, just like Carrie just read. Our our main job is to get these newcomers connected spiritually and uh, in their own of their own understanding, and and have this experience so that that obsession goes away. And uh, I can't do that. Listen to you talk about your dead cat. I'm just saying. I'm pretty direct, guys, but I, I'm not. I'm just. I can't. And um, neither can you. I. Uh, uh, I'd come back in, pick up another chip. Those old guys would shake their head. I knew that little one-eyed guy wasn't ready. And then here we go. You know, they'd go around the room and tell me how they got here and try to scare me into recovery. It is the number one complaint that I have in Alcoholics Anonymous is that we believe that's how they get the newcomer to stay. Identification is so important. But guys, unless we connect the drama with the symptoms, these guys are, they're, they're not paying, they're not paying attention to that. They're sitting there just like me with their arms folded, rolling their eyes, saying, I've never had a drunk driver charge. I've never robbed a liquor store. I don't take my clothes off in public. I'm not all the crazy stuff that some of y'all are doing. I'm not doing. I did take my clothes off in public one time. I'm just saying. But that one time. I know normal people have done that, though. So what the heck? I just (laughs) I don't know. It's like they're trying to scare me into recovery. And that's just not going to work. 1987, I'm done with AA. Uh, I am, uh, uh, it hadn't worked. I've got a therapist. I'm an IOP, uh, intensive outpatient. I'm, you know, I'm learning all about my triggers and everything. And I'm, you know, uh, I can't, I can stop for short periods of time, guys. But uh, in the long run, uh, I'll become so uncomfortable in my skin, I can't stand it. And that obsession comes back and I'm off to the stupid races again. So. I came home one night and picked up some return checks and, and in the mail. And um, guys, just just got up and to the medicine cabinet and tried to off myself. I had some pills stashed up there, and I just I, I, I'm just done. I've, I've been in AA for seven years. I'm, I can't stay sober. I've been to therapy. I've been to church. I've, I've done everything anybody's asked me to do. I'm on all kinds of vitamins, and I, I just I I can't stay sober. And uh, and I can't keep living like this. And I, I, uh, I got those pills to hit my stomach. And about that time, I heard a voice said, "Don't do this. Go back to AA." I don't know what I heard, guys. I believe God intervened on me that night. And I inter- I made myself sick, laid down, conked out on the side of the bed. The next morning, I woke up, and that voice was still in my head. Don't do this. Go back to AA. And uh, as luck would have it, I was running late the next day. I couldn't go back to my old home group. I'm convinced I, I would have not had the same experience. I went to a meeting I'd never been to before, but some old timers had caught me after a meeting one time and told me about it and said it was a big book meeting. I had no idea what that was, but I, uh, it didn't sound too good. I got to tell you that, but uh, I knew where it was and I was running late and uh, I was going to go by and let them know I was coming back to, to AA and, and then I was going to go home and detox, you know, Kentucky fried chicken home. And that was it. And I, uh, I went to this meeting and this little girl stopped me from leaving because I got in and got real self-conscious. I said, I can't believe I'm doing this again. Why would it work now when it didn't work for seven years? 
I just need to say it. I don't know where that little girl is that stopped me from leaving. Her sponsor was across the way and couldn't get to me, but she saw that I was leaving and she pointed, she said, get him. And she stuck her finger in my belt loop, set me down in a chair and said, sit down, cowboy, you're not going anywhere. And said, and I'm not a cowboy. She sat me down in a chair and I, uh, I'm looking like this. She got me a cup of coffee and I stayed for the meeting. I, I, it, I, I'm convinced that I wouldn't have gone back. Y'all thought I'd have gone home and finished the job I started the night before. Don't ever think that you know who God's going to use to help you. You're probably going to be wrong. And a lot of times it ain't the old guru sitting in the corner. You know, it's bless her. Real quick, guys, and I'm going to mention it on when I uh, in the step stuff. They went around that night and shared a bunch of hope with me. And uh, there was nobody in there. Let's tell Chris how he got here. That chairperson said, let's tell Chris how our lives have changed as a result of working the steps. And I went, holy shit. I've never heard that as a topic. And uh, it was like a gratitude meeting. And they went around and they talked about getting their new car. And uh, a lady across the way had her car keys and she was holding them up. She was about a year and something, three months, I think. And she's got her brand new car. And, and uh, the, the guy sitting next to him started a little little business, little landscape business. And he was all excited about making a little money. And I thought that was the coolest. You know, he was just his big old grin on his face. And lady at the end of the table had gone back to art school. I was 35 years old when I was sitting in that meeting, guys. Lady at the end of the table was a little older than I was. But she'd gone back to school. She got her got her art degree. And y'all can see I love art. None of it's mine. I'm talentless. But I love art. And the guy sitting next to me had opened his billfold and had two little Polaroid pictures of his little rat kids, you know, and he was just holding them up. And he'd come to AA and met this little girl and they got married and had a little family. And he had little tears in his eyes looking, looking, just talking about these. End of the meeting, they asked me if I was ready to stay sober one day at a time. And I picked up what was going to be my last desired chip. It's in the closet right behind me. Yeah. And on the way out, these two old geezers stopped me, two old cowboys. And they had big books in, in their hands. And they stopped me and said, Chris, we, I know you're not, you know, you got to go get detoxed. And, and uh, but uh, uh, and you sit with us for just a few minutes. So maybe we could help you figure out why you can't stay sober. And of course, I'm indignant. Y'all understand? <laughs> I've got the best psychiatrist in Dallas, Texas. Yeah, on my on my payroll. I mean, it's like, yeah, all the all the professionals out there have not been able to help me stay sober. And now these two old country bumpkins with busted up big books with duct tape around the back end of them to hold them together. Now they're going to help me stay sober. Now, you know, okay, But for the first time in Alcoholics Anonymous, guys, this is my truth. For the first time, somebody opened the big book and they started showing me the first step. And they explained it. It didn't take them 20 minutes to do. And I went home that night. It was about 30 minutes later, guys. I went home and they said, Chris, if you work these steps with us quick, quickly. I guarantee you, you'll have a spiritual experience and you can recover from alcoholism. And of course, I've been around A long enough to know you can't recover. We'll always be recovering. And here we go. Compacted with a bunch of information I heard a lot of people share, but can't be verified in the big book. I got to tell you, all those old country boys of of my life, they were integral parts of my early sobriety. And I went home that night excited for the first time that I might might have a chance of actually beating this. Next morning, I got up and they showed me how to make a pot of coffee. And um, we ended up doing a third step prayer after the meeting in the back room. They explained the prayer. We did a third step. And they gave me a notebook after lunch. They took me to lunch. And then afterwards, they gave me a little notebook and told me to start working on a fourth step. Showed me the directions on how to do that. And I get, guys, I get emails all over the world for me doing this kind of stuff. That's too quick. It's not. Bill Wilson's detoxing on day three in, in town's hospital, making amends letters from the hospital as Evie's trying to show him how to do these spiritual principles, these spiritual actions. I mean, he didn't have his spiritual experience because he went to detox. He had a spiritual experience because he finally got off his butt and started actually doing something. Just saying. Guys, I got to tell you, the rest of my story is pretty, I mean, they got me involved in service like that. 
And I started sponsoring the first year I was sober, you know, a few months in, I started sponsoring some little newcomers and, and uh, they were watching me like a hawk. They, they, they walked me right straight through it. And uh, uh, the rest was history, man. Uh, we ended up five years later, ended up coming to the Hill Country and, and we opened this little, little AA group where we could talk about being recovered without getting our heads handed to us. And uh, <laughs> I heard a speaker on a Zoom last night and says, you want to piss anybody in AA off? Just say anything. I just like sooner. I mean, there's going to be somebody going to disagree with you. You know, that's just all there is to it. So, yeah, we wanted a place where we could study the literature. And uh, we've got a little AA club that's it's called, the, called the, uh, the Outpost. It's a little recovery club. And you can have a meeting there anytime you want, and, but it's got to be literature based. So there's plenty of other places for the open discussion, just, just, just talk meetings. But uh, we sure have watched a lot of people get well. I, I got to tell you, I think one of my one of my biggest um, observations over the years, based on my own true experience, but also watching other people downstream, uh, the people coming into treatment, people that are coming into our AA group, and they're just disgusted. I mean, how many times have I heard this? I've tried AA, it doesn't work. And then you talk to them for a few minutes, and you find that they didn't try Jack. All they did was go to a bunch of meetings. And I'm not knocking meetings, guys. It's a part. It's a part. Our fellowship, our it's the unity piece of it. It's, it's a part. We've got to do that. But there's nowhere in the big book that says if you go to a meeting, you'll stay sober. It's it's not. It's saying we're supposed to be working the steps. And part of working the steps is is you know being around other people and helping others and being of service and and that's that's what this whole thing boils down to. There's a. Uh, I wanted to read this real quick. Uh, some of y'all know this because I've talked about it before, but there's a, a pamphlet out there. I'm sure Carrie can show you how to get one if you're local, whatever. It's a member's, can y'all see this? There's a glare on it. It's a member's eye view of Alcoholics Anonymous. It's an old pamphlet. It's one of the older ones. Uh, a guy named Alan McGinnis wrote it. Uh, w- wonderful. It was done on a talk he did in the, I think it's the early 70s, 1971. Uh, it was an excerpt from a, from several talks that he did. It was one of the first uh well, and Alcoholics Anonymous took it and made a brochure out of it. And there's some of the best stuff out there in this brochure. So if you can get it, it's um, it's actually P41 is the number. You want to jot that down and you can go online and order it from GSO. But one paragraph, there is a widely held belief in AA that if a newcomer will simply continue to attend meetings, something will finally rub off on you. And the implication, of course, is that that something which rubs off will be this so-called miracle of AA. Now, there's no doubt in my mind that many people in AA accept this statement quite literally. I observed them over the years. They faithfully attend meetings, faithfully waiting for something to rub off. The funny part about it is that that something is rubbing off. Death. They sit there week after month after year while mental and spiritual and physical rigor mortis slowly sets in. Man. Okay. I'm not knocking meetings. Don't anybody leave thinking I'm doing that. I'm not. I go to meetings every week. We're killing people out there by telling them all they got to do is 90 meetings in 90 days and everything will be okay. I was listening to a lady the other day in a meeting in town where I was at. And she told this little newcomer, she said, okay, well, you go to 90 meetings in 90 days, and then and then I'll sponsor you if you can do that. But you see, this lady that she's talking to is a real McCoy, is a real alcoholic. I've known her for years. She's not going to stay sober 90 days until she actually does this work. I just, it freaks me out that people have gotten this message so garbled up. I know it's easier to tell somebody to keep coming back, and I don't want us to stop doing that. But if that's all we're doing, we're not doing that newcomer a bit of good. These old timers stayed after the meeting and sat down with me and showed me the pages, explained what this disease looked like. And for the first time, I understood. Once you're convinced you're a real alcoholic, folks, those are Bill Wilson's terms. He talks about it. I'll read them in a minute. Bill Wilson talks about the real alcoholic. Once you you find out that you are, nothing will stop you from doing this work. But I got to tell you guys, and I'm not trying to be de- divisive whatsoever. Alcoholics Anonymous is chock full of hard drinkers. 
There's a lot of people in our fellowship that are not real alcoholic. They don't have to have a spiritual experience in order to recover. They don't have to get involved in service. All they got to do is come to meetings and, and visit with their friends and go home. And that's, I'm, it's so cool. It's not what we're about. That little newcomer, I got to say it, folks, there's a lot of people out there looking for the cure for alcoholism. Every time we turn around, there's another pharmacist coming up with another pill that's going to fix this problem. Another therapeutic technique that's going to come down the pipe and help. There's not. There's this little fellowship called Alcoholics Anonymous with a program that's so absolutely guaranteed to work, it's not even funny. If we will actually do the work. I'll say this real quick. My time's getting short. Sometimes I I was on, on a Zoom not long ago, and there was a guy doing the, doing the steps in there. And this was actually a newcomer's meeting in the, on this Zoom. And I was visiting it because I had a friend that was chairing it. And I was watching this, this Zoom, and this guy up there had a, had, a, had a board up there behind him, and he was doing a bunch of, you know, chalk work. And did y'all, y'all ever see the movie A Beautiful Mind? Y'all remember when this guy's up in his room like that and he's got this chart board and his pens and this, you know, sh- you know, lines connected to this. And then this brings us, us over here and this brings us over here. And it's like, oh, my God, how confusing can this possibly be? One of the things that's happened to us in the fellowship is that and it's propagated by some of us old timers is that we get bored with the simplicity and we want to complicate it. So we have something new to talk about which is fine if you happen to be 20 years sober and you want a new experience and you want to learn something different. There's lots of things out there that you can add to this. But when we're working with a newcomer, I really think it's important that we open the book and start cherry picking and showing them how to do this work. I'm not sitting down with my guys and reading the book. You can, if you've got time, I'm opening it up and cherry picking. I've got a little guide that I use, a little quick outline to qualify a newcomer. And that's what the same thing those old guys did for me 35 years ago. And I've got it. I could email it to you. Uh, I'll put my little email at the, some point in the, in the, in the chat. You guys can holler if you want it. I'll be glad to send it to you. But the deal is, is to get them through this work quick. I'll say it quick. Uh, the old timers used to, uh, I still hear people in meetings all the time. Well, this is not a race. Yes, it is. It absolutely is a race because that obsession's coming back. So the sooner I can get them through the work, the better that's going to be. I, I just, yeah. The guy that brought Alcoholics Anonymous to Texas, a guy named Larry Jewell, uh, had never been to a meeting. He needed to get out of the cold environment. AA took up a collection and got him a big book and a train ticket to Houston where he had a job. And he got on the train and he read the big book and he came to Texas and he started a meeting, <laughs> never been to a meeting, started a meeting and I started sponsoring people. And uh, you should see the, the, the connections, the, the group that started here in Kerrville area where I live was started by one of his sponsees. It's, it's, it's pretty cool. It's a race, folks, and it's a race to get to the little place where you can actually start being of service and that's guaranteed spiritual experience that takes place. And that's where I'm coming from. The next couple of days, we're going to talk about this. And so uh, this working through the steps is going to be a pretty, pretty fast paced deal, guys. It's not that complicated. And again, I'll mention certain things. If you want to email me, I can send them to you. All stuff right, right out of the big book, all AA stuff and uh, would be honored to do that, guys. I am so blessed that I am sitting in this gathering. I'm looking forward to the next couple of days, and I'm really looking forward to getting here, Billy. Uh, he's sharp as a tack. Thank you all so much. Thank you so very much, Chris. We really appreciate you taking the time to spend this very special weekend with us. Next, please allow me to introduce our next speaker this weekend to share his story with us for about 35 minutes. Billy N. from the Tell It Like It Is group from Palm Beach Gardens, Florida. Thanks. I'm Billy. I'm an alcoholic. And I took my tie off that I had on this morning. Uh, But Chris and I are going to be here the whole weekend. So ties seem a little extreme. I'm even going to try to be outside as long as the weather is good. Um, But it's really good to be here. Uh, I want to thank the district for hosting this event and anyone who had anything to do with it. It's great to be with Chris and thank him, uh, really thank him for mentioning 
what might be the greatest paragraph in any AA literature. I mean, I know that's a pretty strong statement, but that little talk that Alan gave, um, that paragraph, and uh, I'm actually going to talk about a lot about that in Tradition One today, um, after I tell my story, that sometimes I feel the most disunifying thing we do in AA is not talking about AA regarding recovery. And uh, we should not be afraid to embrace that talking about, um, you know, I mean, I'll just read it now. Uh, If you're not familiar with this, it's uh, story 105 uh, in As Bill Sees It, which used to be called AA is a Way of Life. But the top of it goes like this. To spend too much time on any one alcoholic is to deny some other an opportunity to live and be happy. One of our fellowship failed entirely with his half first dozen prospects. He often says that if he had continued to work on them, he might have deprived others who have since recovered of their chance. And then perhaps maybe the greatest statement in all of this book, our chief responsibility to the newcomer is an adequate presentation of the program. If he does nothing or argues, we do nothing but maintain our own sobriety. If he starts to move ahead even a little with an open mind, we then break our necks to help in every way we can. So, um, you know, one of the things that's interesting, I have a half hour, which is awesome. Um, because when you only have a half an hour, you got to cut out a lot of fluff. And, and one of the things that you realize when you stay here for a little while is a lot of the things you used to think were very important when you told your story are not important. And a lot of the things you used to think were not important are really important, like really, really important. And we've already mentioned that, you know, and I'm going to start off talking a little bit about the allergy and the mental obsession for this reason, because in my life right now, in my current, in my current life, in, 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 in the last four months, I have had an insane amount of people who are close to me die. Okay, pass away, including Tom I, including Chris B at a very young age a few weeks ago. And um, and I'm not going to say that it's been easy and I'm not going to say that I have liked it. And I'm not going to say that, you know, I, I haven't like, you know, had this kind of emotional stuff on my mind in a while. You know, what Chris was talking about, and in my own story, what I want to make sure is important is, you know, what it says on page, uh, 52 is this, we had to ask ourselves why, why we shouldn't apply to our human problems, the same readiness to change our point of view, not to our alcoholic thinking, not to our alcoholic mind but to our human problems. And why do I mention that in talking about my story? Because I have a partner at work and another executive, and we work closely and we have for almost, I don't know, almost eight years now. And um, he had a very kind of emotional thing going on in his life the last week regarding one of his children. He has other human problems too just like I do. But what's the difference between him and I? Why are these other human problems so mentioned and stressed in the big book? See, because my partner with these other human problems, he's allowed something called a drink. He's allowed to have a drink or two at the end of the day. It does what it's supposed to do. And I wish I had learned at a very early time, but I didn't, that for people like me, there are two kinds of people in the world. There are people who can drink and people who can't. And if you're a real alcoholic, as described in the big book, then you're a person who can't. I can't drink. I am mentally and physically different from most people. My partner at work, he can. See, because if I let those other human problems gather up on me, 
See, one drink is lighting a nuclear bomb. One drink is setting off a course that I don't know where it's going to end. And, you know, I came in very young. You know, I, I come from those one of those raised by wolves houses. I do. That doesn't make me an alcoholic. I come from a long line of alcoholics. That doesn't make me an alcoholic either. There's lots of stuff around that house that maybe I thought was important a long time ago, but it's, it's not really important. What's really important is, as Dr. Silkworth described to Bill W. before he went to Akron, what's really important is the medical estimate of alcoholism as it pertains to me. So there I am, a young kid, a teenager, and I already have problems. I have other human problems. I don't get along with people. I don't like authority. I've realized that even though, like, I'm not the kid who was picked last on the baseball team. I wasn't picked first, but far from last. I'm not stigmatized because of, you know, I was the last kid picked on the kickball team. But early on, I knew by the time I was in sixth and seventh grade, that there were a couple of things I was good at, much better than other people. I knew I remembered basically everything I read. I knew I could do complicated math in my head. I knew I could do very complicated math on a small piece of paper. So I knew I was good at that, but uh, these other human problems, uh, let me tell you something. Any self-discovery I make, I never use for good, okay? I just want to be clear on that. When I have my own self-discovery, it never pans out well. So when you're in sixth to seventh grade and you've already decided I'm smarter than the teachers, and by the way, if I insult teachers or social workers or Al-Anon members, I'll clean it up before the end of the weekend, okay? I'm just talking about my view back then. I believe teachers have an immense important role in society to prepare children. And I am indebted to people who chose that profession. But if you're talking about me as a punk little kid who knew you could remember everything and was good at math. Yeah. I thought teachers did it because they couldn't do it. That's why they taught it. And I thought that I knew more than they knew. And, you know, while there's only a few things that make us an alcoholic, the allergy and the obsession, Um, if you've worked with a lot of people in AA, you get to know that there are some things in common that we have. It doesn't make us alcoholic, but it sure does seem to uh, be common among people that have the same problem as me. You know, and one of those problems is, is you tell me not to do something, I do it. I just have to. It's just, I have to do it. On the, on the extreme opposite, If you tell me to do something without telling me why, I will never do it. If you're just telling me something to tell me to do something without telling me the legitimate, logical reason why, I'm not going to do it. If you tell me not to go somewhere, I am going to go there, and probably quickly. And the last one, if you tell me not to hang out with certain people, I know they're my kind of people, okay? That's just been a rule for my whole life, right? And by the way, still today, I'm like a magnet at a hockey game or a football game or a concert to be seated exactly next to the last person I should ever be around. It's like it's like a magnet in my life. Um, But the reason I tell you that is. My mother had pointed out who the bad kids were in the neighborhood. And she pointed out that they all hung out in the woods. And. You know, finally, one day, one of those older kids said, Billy, why don't you come to the woods? And I couldn't wait to go. I could not wait. I didn't know what happened in the woods. But when it comes to things you're not supposed to do, I have this sixth sense that I'm always that I'm going to love it. Like, I don't know what they do, but I can tell I'm going to love it. And, you know, that night in the woods, I always say, you know, the line in Bill's story, I had arrived. You know, I arrived that night and there were only four things in the woods that changed my life. There was a bonfire in the woods. I'd never been to a bonfire in the woods. There were girls in the woods. There was loud, heavy metal music. 
if you're from my generation, everybody traveled around in their group with some kid who had rich parents who had a big boom box with like eight speakers and double cassette, right? So they had a lot of Zeppelin and, and a lot of Ozzy in the woods. And they had alcohol. And by the day after that day in the woods, my life didn't need to get any better than that. Truthfully. If all my life was, was a fire in the woods and girls and heavy metal music and alcohol, my life would be fine. You know, from that day, for a few years forward, I didn't know about the medical estimate of alcoholism. I didn't. I, I didn't realize that no matter what, every time I started drinking, I had no control. That my body didn't process alcohol. I have an abnormal reaction to alcohol. And that I keep drinking and keep drinking. I could tell you my progression. By the time I was in eighth grade, ninth grade, the only thing I thought about on a Monday morning is where are we drinking on Friday night? Whose parents are away? You know, who's, who has fake ID? Whose brother or sister can get us what we need? By the time I was in 10th grade, the only thing I really thought about was I can't make it to Friday night. Friday night might as well be next year. Friday night might be telling me you can drink next on St. Patrick's Day, Billy. And where I come from, St. Patrick's Day is a season, not a day, right? You could tell me all this stuff, but I needed to drink by Wednesday. Maybe Tuesday. But no one told me that I had this mental obsession and this allergy. No one told me that when I got physically sober, I was uncomfortable in my own skin. And once I found King Alcohol and a way to become comfortable in my skin, I would all, my mental obsession would take me down that route to be comfortable, to have the first drink. Now, I am very thankful to a judge in juvenile court who I met when I was 14 years old. And I didn't talk about judges this nicely for a long time either. But, you know, I don't know when the miracle happened. And for all of you who do service, whatever you do, I'm extremely, extremely thankful. Because I don't know if it was a day before, a week before, a year before, or five years before. I don't know if it was somebody in his family whose life was saved by Alcoholics Anonymous, or if it was an AA service committee that whispered in this judge's ear. But somebody told this judge that someday a young boy or girl, boy or girl, not even man or woman, a boy or a girl might come in this courtroom. And it's possible they could be an alcoholic. And if that's the case, he should send them to AA. Now, what's important about my story there is a choice that I made. And this is how real alcoholism is. This is how real the allergy and the mental obsession are. I was offered to go to a juvenile correctional facility where I would go to school there. Judge even told me and my mother, Billy won't have to worry about getting, you will not have to worry even because even when I left for school, sometimes that didn't mean I went to school. If I was leaving for school and kids were buying beer and hanging out in the woods, well, I would do that. This judge told me if I went to this place, I wouldn't have to worry about that. They had a school right there where you live. See, I had not been institutionalized at the time. So I didn't know better. I was scared to go away to that place. Because I thought I wouldn't be able to drink. And by age 14, that was not an option for me. There was no way I could agree to go to some place where I could not drink. So he gave me these other choices, which one of them was to go to some AA meetings. And, you know, I was in and out of AA for, from age 14 to 23. And like Chris said, I have lots of good drinking stories. Most of the world has good drinking stories. That's my experience. I've traveled with people for work, having dinner for 20 years with people. They all have good drinking stories. You know what they also have that I don't have? They go to work the day after they drink. <laughs> they stop drinking when they feel a little out of control. 
They don't need to drink every night of the week. There's times when they have one drink and times when they have three. They've all done stupid things drinking. Doing stupid things drinking is what drunk people do. Bill W. said that in a talk to a bunch of religious people in the early 60s. Alcoholics don't have the market on doing dumb things while drinking. It's what everybody does. I was on probation my whole life. Real probation. I'm not good at probation. If I'm still drinking, I am a bad probationer. I went to that early AA. If I saw you with a big book, I knew you were a lunatic. If I saw you get out of your car in a parking lot with your own big book, I thought you were the Taliban. You were like some complete, over-the-top, crazy lunatic AA. Not going to talk to you. Um, I went to my first anniversary meeting when I was 16. And I can tell you that I sat there thinking, they want to take my life away. They do. They want to take my party away. And I thought to myself, I'm, I was 16 at that point. 26, 36, 46. Like, even if I make it till I'm 46 years old, my big night of the month is going to be the Friday night anniversary meeting with the old lady who's 34 years old who uh, shuts the lights down halfway and the old 40-year-old guy who brings a cake with candles on it. Like, that's going to be my big night out. And, you know, that's why, you know, the literature is so important because we can hear so many things in meetings that are not in our literature. I hear people say all the time that their worst day sober is better than their best day drinking. That is absolutely not my story. That is not even remotely close to my story. I guess it is for some people, but not me. You want to tell me that going into a correctional facility five months sober was better than the first day of spring break, Fort Lauderdale, 1988? No way. I know which day was better. I think they steal it from a line that they paraphrase in the big book that goes something like, I wouldn't trade the life I have today for the life of yesteryear. Now, that's not even a remotely close question. Of course, I wouldn't trade my life for today. But you see, I tried everything. You know, if you've ever been on a cruise or somewhere and, you know, or you've you've been in a supermarket or somewhere and you heard somebody say a code word that like you heard them say something like, wow, maybe they're in the club, you know, and you ask them, are you a friend of Bill W's, you know, or if you go on a cruise, they'll have a sign for the friend of Bill W uh, meeting. But you know what I'm more concerned about when I meet somebody in AA? I'm more concerned if you're a friend of Fred or Jim's. Not if you're a friend of Bill's. Like, do you have a personal relationship with Fred and Jim? Because even though Fred and Jim were much older than me, their story is mine as a teenager into my early 20s. You know what some guy, by the way, if you're new, just a little helpful hint. If you're looking for like, I know everybody in the world is a life coach these days. It seems we have more life coaches in AA than we have sponsors. Um, But if you're looking for life advice, there's a couple of places you shouldn't take it. The newcomer table at a diner after a meeting, the probation department, DWI school. These are places where you should not look for life advice. I did. Some guy told me, oh, Billy, like I thought my problem was the first shot after the eighth beer. If I just didn't do shots, I'd be okay. It can't be that first innocent looking drink. And then I thought it was hard alcohol. You know what some guy at DWI school told me? Billy, you should try white wine spritzers. I didn't even know what a white wine spritzer was. You know what I know about white wine spritzers today? I can drink like 40 of them in one night. That's what I know. I know that I drink like 40 of them, and I wake up in the morning rolling ice in a beach towel to put on my head back in bed. That's what I know about white wine spritzers. I know nothing. I've tried every single thing like Fred and Jim talk about. But sooner or later, the obsession comes knocking on my door. Now, I spent a good, you know, bit of time in a correctional facility. 
after I got sober this time. And, you know, for those of you that um, have heard different, I just want to let you know that the best AA inside a correctional facility is real AA. There's no special prisoner jail AA. There's no kind of a couple of traditions here, a couple of steps there. Nope. Good old AA is what works best. Um, I was lucky. A miracle happened. I listened to a story. I'm dating myself. I had a Walkman. Some of you don't even know what that is. Uh, it was a little square box. You could put a cassette in and listen to music on headphones that were attached by a wire that didn't that like went in and had to be attached to listen. Uh, the number one song or the popular songs at the time were like, you can't touch this in hammer time. Right. Um, but I heard Tom I's tape and I got some, I got some hope. When I was released, I lived in New York city. I needed to live someplace that I couldn't, I was not going to have a driver's license for a while, a good many years. Um, I got involved in service. I got involved in the International Conference of Young People in AA. I got a home group. But my sponsor had two things that were not optional for everybody. And um, the one thing was we had to go to the Bill W. dinner. That was the dinner for the New York inner group. And he told me how important it was that meeting direct, you know, because I know world, the life is different right now. But back in the day, a meeting directory was like gold. Like that was my handbook. I went nowhere without it in my back pocket. I had people's phone numbers on it. And some old timer circled meetings that had cookies and coffee because I had no money. The other thing that wasn't optional was the Joe and Charlie big book study. That was in 1993. That weekend, my life changed. It didn't change immediately, like on the outside, but on the inside, it changed. I learned about what it means to be an alcoholic, a real alcoholic. I learned about how important identification is for one alcoholic working with another. I learned that we say when we read it, rarely have we seen a person fail who has thoroughly followed our path. But that really means rarely have we seen a person fail who's done steps four through nine. I learned how important steps 10, 11, and 12 are. I learned it from two old guys who were not experts. They looked like two old guys who just like to get sit around and talk about a book that they loved. I got involved in service. I put my hand up to be an alternate GSR and a GSR. Um, you know, that same sponsor gave me a community college application. At the time, I said to him, if I go back to school now, I won't finish till I'm 40. And he said, well, unless you die, you're going to be 40. And at least you can say you tried. That was a long time ago. I learned about a commitment to a home group. I learned about being compassionate to meeting newcomers. All this time, life has had challenges for sure. Life brings challenges. One of my biggest challenges was because of my so-called, you know, my self-view of my brain, I didn't believe in God. And again, I don't want to insult anyone here. I'm just telling you how arrogant I was. I thought God was some mystery man, smoke and mirror show in the sky that people who weren't as smart as me and didn't understand science, they believed in. That's what I thought. Today, I believe in God, not because of what I've read, not because of what anyone has said, but because by being an active member of Alcoholics Anonymous, I have witnessed miracles in other people's lives that are not possible in the human world. I've seen things happen and this is what I want to kind of end with. Um, I just want to get the quote so I don't mess it up. Um, 
the heavy drinker, the social drinker, whatever they are, maybe all these modern means work. I don't know. But I'll go with what it says in the literature. An obsession for destructive drinking that only an act of providence can, t- can remove from us. That's it. An act of providence. That's what we're selling here. You know, you know, it is, we are not selling that whoever got up the earliest this morning is the most sober. That's like the craziest thing ever. You know, like if you got up early this morning, you're more sober. Or all we're selling is one day of sobriety. That's all we can offer you here. We want you to put all your faith in us and our literature and our program. But we can only give you a day. First of all, a day at a time only appears in the service manual. And it has nothing to do with the steps. It has to do with your emotional well-being. We sell permanent sobriety here. For a long time, I was a customer that chose not to want permanent sobriety. Who chose not to want three legacy AA membership. And today I've had to learn. And it's a hard lesson. And I've failed at times. My life has to be at least 51% dedicated to somebody else's life. I'm too much of a taker. Otherwise, I'm too self-absorbed. My life has to be one of service. But there's a lot of pitfalls in AA, and I watch out for them. I try to watch out for them because I know I've fallen in some of them. There's the pitfall of, Don't let the podium become your home group. That'll kill you. It might not kill you physically right away, but spiritually, it'll kick your ass. Don't let your assembly become your home group. Don't get lost that AA service is the only contact you have with AA. AA is best in all three legacies. I have a rule for myself. For every one of these things that I do, These things meaning like this, or speaking at a convention, or speaking at a meeting. I need to do two other things in AA where I am not the center of attention. I'm a regular attendee of my home group still today. I'm a regular attendee of other meetings. I believe that there is no more spiritual place in the world than the AA parking lot. And while I'm so happy we did this a year ago, I think I have like a minute or two left, if I'm not mistaken. Um, I'll say this. On one hand, Zoom has been amazing. If this was January the 1st of 2019, and Chris and I were doing this, the next day there would be emails flying around that Chris R. and Billy N. have lost their minds. They're now doing workshops on TV with lots of people. Like, what has happened to them? And so there is so much good. As Tom, I would say, when God has work to do, the walls come down. So much good this platform can do, but it can also do so much evil and so much damage. AA was meant to be local and community-based. When the dark night of the soul visits you, and it will, it comes in all different forms. It's not going to be a bunch of people online that are going to save your life. You know what it's going to be? A bunch of people who drive you crazy in your local meeting at at a Waffle House. You know, why do I love AA? I'm going to close with this. Two members in AA who don't know each other told me the same story about the power of the Fellowship of Alcoholics Anonymous. They didn't know each other. And they told me the story years apart in their own life. And the story goes like this. They were in the hospital for something serious for a couple of days. Both people had the nurse come up to them and whisper in their ear the same thing. And what the nurse whispered was this. I know the name you're here is false and that you're famous. And both people looked at the nurse and said, what are you talking about? Like I'm a plumber or I'm a mailman. Like, what are you talking about? And the nurse gave the same response to both these AA members in the hospital. 
I don't care what you tell me. There's 50 lunatics down at the security desk, all fighting and lying to get one of the visitor passes for the two visitor passes at a time. Like when the chips are down, you want 50 people in the emergency room fighting with the security guard to come and see you. When the chips are down, you want 50 people in IHOP or the Waffle House around you taking care of you. When the chips are down, you want people bringing food to your house because there's no time to cook for your family. That's the real beauty of Alcoholics Anonymous. Thanks. Good to be here. Thank you so, so very much, Billy. We really appreciate your willingness to take your time and spend this very special weekend with us.